0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, the 6th chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at the beginning at the 5th verse today. I'll be there in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, as we continue on in Paul's application of the great truths of the gospel to, in domestic affairs, uh, we read, bond servants, verse 5, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things for them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Amen. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to bless us in your word, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Excuse me here. This is a little bit difficult passage for me in trying to prepare this week, primarily because... Um, We don't have slaves in our culture. That's been done away with. And we all would acknowledge that's a good thing. In the Greco-Roman world that Paul wrote to, there were bond servants. They were attached as permanent members of the household. Um, And Paul addressed them. Many of them had become Christians. They were saved people. So he gives them instruction. So I'm looking at this passage thinking, all right, Lord, I know your word speaks to us. So how so In, in this passage? Because... There's neither slaves nor masters in our churches. Not that I know of, anyway. Um, and how does this apply? So I kind of honestly, I have to tell you, I wrestled with this. And then it was like, the Lord was like, look again. And then I looked at it and considered a few things. Ah, how it applies. So let's take a look at this. And first we we'll consider it in, in its historical context. There were bondservants, and the word bondservant there is douloi. It comes from the Greek, that's the plural form, douloi in Greek, plural of the singular doulos. Some, there's a couple of English words that have that in it, but uh, not a lot. We don't. That's not a word that got transferred over into English in daily use. But it means slave, that's what it means. Now, in the United States, because of the uh, chattel slavery that was practiced in certain parts of the United States in our early history, that's a word that some people aren't comfortable with because, you know, slaves, that you think of all the abuse and everything. And generally, anytime there's any institution where one person has authority over another, there's going to be abuse. And there was great abuse of slaves, both in the near modern world, that is when we had it in our country at it from its beginning until the Civil War. Uh, But even in the ancient world, slaves were often abused and they were treated as those that had no citizenship rights. And so we look at this and it's like, well, okay, Paul addresses them. And a lot of those young men or older people, we're not told their age particularly, but their status in life was that they had been brought into bondage, either by being kidnapped or being sold into slavery or somehow there, if their parents were slaves, generally when the children were born, they were considered to be of the same class, etc. And so we're uncomfortable with the word, but that's actually what the word means. It means slave. It doesn't mean chattel slavery necessarily, the idea of breaking up families and things like that. Uh, but it meant that one man owns another man's labor, all right? And um, that that's what slavery is. Slavery, you know, some have said, well, so when one man owns another man, that's no, that's not actually a, the real definition. It's not one person owns another person. They own their labor. You know, that slave master didn't have the right to kill his slave. He didn't own that person. But a slave master laid claim to that person's uh, labor and the wealth that it produced. And so slaves uh, are people who labor and others that have more power over them lay claim to their uh, the fruits of their labor. Some of you might be thinking, oh, maybe we're not quite as free as we thought, okay? Uh, But, uh, you know, there's certain things that some people try to say, oh, well, that's slavery, and it can be. But we're not to uh, consider this necessarily as as applicable immediately to freemen. In the context of these were people who were in bondage, that is, they had to stay where they were to labor, and the fruits of their labor they didn't get to keep. It belonged to their master. And so bond servants, he writes, and notice what he tells them. He doesn't say, kill your masters and break your chains. He says, Bondservant, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So Paul writes to Christians and he's telling, he's not saying let your master kill you or something like that, or let him do harm to your wife and children. But he's saying, Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. The word fear there actually is translated elsewhere. Respect, when it tells wives they are to uh, respect their husbands, when it says, let wives see that they respect their husbands. Uh, it's the uh, same word that's used here. When, that's, By the way, that's at the end of chapter 5, that last verse. Uh, let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the Greek word phabos. That means to honor and respect. Same word used when we speak of the fear of God. So he's, it really is saying with respect, and trembling, meaning take what they say seriously. And note what he says, in sincerity of heart. But note, he's telling the, the bond servants, your masters are not the ones that determine your behavior, your Savior is. Because note what he says, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service, <laughs> that's literally eye slavery or eye servitude, that is, To the eyes, you look like you're serving your masters, but in reality, you're not. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So he's saying it's God's will for you to labor, and if this is your calling, then that's how you're to labor to serve the Lord. So be a good servant is what he's telling them. And he says, note here also in verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. And so he says, what you're doing, even though you're in bondage and you have to work and you're required to, to do so, and God doesn't relieve you of that here, he's saying, do it with goodwill. Do it as unto the Lord. Recognize that your relationship with others, even masters, is something God himself providentially has appointed. So this is what Paul is is telling them. And then he he encourages them by saying, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. That's pretty radical, because a slave is a person that doesn't get to keep the fruits of their labor. Paul is telling the, the slaves in the church in Ephesus, he's telling them, you're going to get to keep the fruits of your labor because the Lord will reward you. whatever, even though you have masters that don't allow you to keep uh, you know the fruits of your toil, God sees it and He will reward you. So this is where Christ said to lay up your treasures in heaven. So this is pretty radical and encouraging. So if you were a bond servant, that meant that well, I guess you know we would say today it's kind of like money in the bank. I'll just trust the Lord. I'll, I'll be a faithful servant and trust that he will bless me and that my inheritance is in heaven. And as Paul says, uh, whatever anyone does, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So the the servants were encouraged. This isn't the only place where Paul or the apostles teach this either. And then he says, and you masters, and literally it's lords. Same word used for when we speak of the Lord, you know, and in the Greek language, uh, kurios, this is kurioi, it's, Plural means those who have authority over others in in the sense of being their masters. He said, do the same things to them, giving up threatening. So he he speaks to the masters. And when he says giving up threatening, the idea is that that's generally someone's under your authority. So you can be abusive. You can talk to them like they're trash. They're a slave. They don't have any rights. Paul says that's got to stop. You can't be doing that. That's not going to glorify God and it's not going to help you ultimately you do the same thing to them that means they're to serve you with goodwill. you're to treat them with goodwill. you're to be kind to them and then he reminds them knowing that your own master also is in heaven that is uh, you belong to christ you profess that you do he is sovereign so in one sense he's your lord whether you acknowledge it or not and he's in heaven he rules over all things and he sees all things so paul's basically telling the masters knock off being abusive to your servants um, and then he reminds him, there's no partiality with him. Uh, there's no favoritism is what that means, partiality. Um, it, it literally means, you know, showing respect to a person, kind of, you might say, by the way they look, okay? Um, James talks about that in his epistle in chapter two, uh, that, you know, if a rich man comes into your assembly and a poor man, you treat the one, you roll out the car, red carpet for. the other guy, you just treat him like, dirt say or just sit here or sit under my chair or whatever um james says that's bad Paul saying here recognize you have a master in heaven there's no partiality with him you know your servants your slaves they are accountable to god for their behavior you are accountable to god for your behavior as i said this isn't the only place where this is taught if we flip a little bit over a couple pages and over to colossians Chapter three. Colossians is actually almost a parallel epistle to Ephesians. If you want to read a good commentary on Ephesians, read Colossians. okay? There's a lot there that Paul goes over for the church in Colossae, very similar. And you see in chapter three where he's talking about domestic he talks about domestic relationships. talks about wives in verse 18, husbands, 19 children, 20, kind of like what we went over in Ephesians. And then in verse 22, he says, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. He reminds them, they're your masters according to the flesh. They don't have dominion over your soul, all right? They, but you, you are in bondage, and so recognize that. And again, he says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. That could also be understood, honoring God in your vocation. <laughs> and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will will receive the reward of the inheritance. So again, Paul lets them know, you may not get the fruit of your labor here. But God sees it and he will reward you for faithful service when Christ returns. And you will receive the reward of the inheritance uh, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he does wrong. So Paul says, no, that's a two way thing. If you do good, you'll receive blessing if you do bad that's you know you're gonna have that'll come up in when you give account of yourself but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality then he goes on and says masters give your bond servants what is just and fair all right i just blew bond servitude out of the water you might say you know sometimes you see the old movies when the torpedo hits the boat and that's where that phrase comes from uh give them what is just and fair Pretty well, does away with taking all the produce or all, all the uh, benefit or uh, product from their labors, doesn't it? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Then he tells them both in verse 2. He doesn't really change subjects. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So he tells them keep praying. He's talking to masters and slaves saying you guys should be praying and praying together, which they did do in church. In uh, First Timothy... And Paul wrote to Timothy, giving him some directions to pass on to the saints. In chapter 6, and note again, I just want you to see that this isn't an isolated teaching. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says in verse 1, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. You see, some of those slaves had masters that weren't Christians. And so he says, let your master see that there's a difference in your life because of Christ. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because uh, those who are, excuse me, serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So recognize these are God's people at this institution of, of servitude. Uh, and so Paul tells Timothy, these things uh, exhort, excuse me, t- Teach and exhort these things. So Paul's saying to me, this needs to be taught. We're not teaching uh, what was called servile insurrection here. We're not saying, you know, you, we need a revolution and you know slaves rise up against your masters, etc. Paul doesn't teach that. The New Testament doesn't teach that. He says serve faithfully. In uh, Titus chapter two, we go over a couple of pages here. In Titus. Chapter 2, at verse 9, Paul writes, excuse me, yes, Paul writes, and he says to Titus, Titus was in Crete, and there were bondservants there and masters. So in verse 9, he says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So he says, Tell, tell those who are in bondage as as slaves that they're to serve the Lord. They're not to steal from their masters. They're not to answer back with, you know, smart-alecky, re, uh, you know, responses or behind their master's backs. He said they're to conduct themselves with, in good fidelity, that they might adorn the doctrine of God. In other words, that the gospel will be seen to be a beautiful thing by their changed lives. And then finally in First Peter, it's not just Paul that said this. And Peter writes, and he has a, uh, Something to say about this in First Peter chapter 2, at verse 18, Peter says, Servant, the Greek word is douloi, slaves, be submissive to your masters uh, with all fear. Again, that can mean respect and honor, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So you don't determine your behavior based on whether they're nice to you or not. You determine your behavior because you belong to Christ. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Now he's not saying let your masters beat you to death. He's just saying if they do you know, use that type of punishment, if you, if you know you had it coming because you were stealing from them or doing things you shouldn't have done, what credit is that if you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you're trying to serve and they're just surly and their demeanor and their character is warped, um, he said, if you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. And he's not talking about if your masters want to commit crimes toward you, try to kill you or harm you in, in ways that are against God's law. He's saying that you know if you just have masters that are rude and once in a while you know refer to, you know will we'll slap you or hit you with a stick or something. Uh, he's not saying let them beat you to death, but he's saying, uh, but when you do suffer, you take it patiently. He said this is commendable before God, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. And it goes on, he's talking about Christ. He's pointing to bond servants. Remember your Lord Jesus Christ, what he went through. So if you're in a bad situation, if you might say if your life's not what you would like it to be, you can still serve God in that capacity. In First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul really does address this institution of slavery and those who were found in it in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and he, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 He's talking about abiding in your calling. And uh if we pick it up in verse 20, he says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And then he makes application. Were you called while a slave? That is a bond servant and do lots. Uh he said, Were you called while saved? You got saved and you were were not a free man under Roman law says, do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Very important principle here. He's saying if there's a mechanism for you to get your freedom, do it. So Paul isn't putting a blank you know, endorsement over slavery. He's not saying, oh, it's a wonderful institution. Let's see if we can continue it until the end of time. He's saying if you are found in bondage, if you can get your freedom, get it. Note what that that's very important. One of the reasons why I believe, you know, a lot of stuff about the old South I truly love, but I believe one of the reasons why God's judgment fell upon them in our country was because they, with the continuation of chattel slavery, there was no legal mechanism for a person in bondage to ever be made free, except by the will of their master. There was nothing they could do. So once in a while, a guy, He'd save money and you know he'd buy his own freedom, but lots of times the master would say, "No, I'm not freeing you." And there was no method, you know, mechanism for that. Also, children were often sold away from their families. Marriages were broken up, and the wife was sold, uh, and just horrible things. And of course, you know, that's a provoking God's judgment. There were many Christians, and they pointed to these passages that I'm reading today, saying, "Aha! See." See, you Yankees should leave us alone because God tells slaves to obey their masters. The slavery that Paul was talking about and the way it was being practiced by a professed Christian people in the South, two different things. The idea of breaking up families, selling uh, children away from their parents, et cetera. Pure wickedness. And that was judged. And it wasn't judged just simply because the majority of the people in the South didn't own slaves. All right. It was judged because they did nothing about it. Just like abortion in our day and age, we wonder where our country is coming under judgment, you know. And it's like, well, you know, the people that are promoting that, so if it's a small percentage in our country, perhaps, yeah. And because of the huge majority of people that do absolutely nothing about it, you begin to see that God does take note of the 65 million babies that were butchered by abortion, and He does send judgment. Uh, with wicked political leaders, wicked laws, immorality of children being groomed in our schools for every kind of perversion you can think of, uh, uh, protected by law. And if you speak up against it, you're a bad person, according to the modern secular culture. God does judge nations. So in this case, Paul is saying, if you can get free, get it. If there's a way for you to get your freedom, and he's not talking about killing their masters either. He means if you can lawfully get your freedom, then become a free man. And so uh, he tells them that. And then he tells them why. He says, uh, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. So he said, you're free in Christ. Don't forget that. Likewise, he was called while free. So you go, well, I'm not a slave. Yeah, I guess again, you say you're free. You're not free. You belong to Christ. You're bought with a price. That's what he says in the next verse. You're Christ's Christ slave. And not that Christ slave. You belong to him. Why? Because he bought you when you were in bondage. You were in bondage under sin. Uh, You were bought at a price. Who's he speaking to there? Masters or slaves? Speaking to all of them. Speaking to us there. Okay. So he says, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. By the way, that has great application and implications in our society. That's why as Christians, when we see things being done in our country that appear to have the end of enslaving us, we resist. And we say, we're not going to go along with that. We do everything lawfully that we can to say that's wrong. Our founding fathers recognized that the, and if you read the Declaration of Independence, they concluded that the crown of England had one specific purpose. And that was basically to make slaves out of everyone. And that again is that you labor, but you don't get to keep the fruits of your labor. And it was being done through taxation and oppressive laws and not respecting people's homes, quartering of soldiers in people's houses and all kinds of things like that. And so they said the crown of England seems to have the intention of enslaving us and parliament is doing nothing about it. By the way, the, the colonies had a lot of friends in the British Parliament, but didn't have a majority at times, and so they said, "We are not. We cannot allow ourselves to become the slaves of men." Why? Well, First Corinthians seven twenty three tells us that we are not to become slaves of men. This also meant that Christians shouldn't sell themselves into slavery, as was sometimes done uh, in the. Uh, first century and around it and so he says brethren let each one remain with god in that state in which he was called so he's letting the slaves know you're not out of god's will if you're found in bondage but if you can get free get it and if you are free do not allow yourself to be put into slavery now there's an interesting thing because often slaves were people that were captured in war you know, uh, warfare-type slaves. They were brought into slavery. Uh, But others sometimes were kidnapped. And I want you to see what the Scripture says about those who were put into slavery or just were the victims of being kidnapped in Exodus chapter 21. This is the law of Moses and definitely speaks to this very clearly. Okay, in, in Exodus 21 at verse 16 it says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, that is, sells him into slavery. Note that he who kidnaps a man and sells him into slavery, if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Okay? Uh, and literally, it's also it, that it, and who, if someone is found in someone's hand, is, who's bought someone from that condition. And so here we can see that God does not approve of slavery In this sense. Now, it was regulated. Some would say, well, then why did Paul tell slaves not to, you know, didn't tell them to rebel? He just told them to obey. Well, God regulated polygamy in the Old Testament, but it was nothing good ever came of it. He never commanded it, but because it was being practiced, he regulated it. Paul said, you know, let, uh, you know, the elders must be the husbands of one wife. Uh, the reason why Paul didn't just do away with polygamy is, you know, the natural tendency. By the way, when missionaries have done that, this is why I don't think Paul went in and said, if you have a plurality of wives, uh, you know, you need to get rid of all but one. He didn't say go; you can have more than one wife. He just said if you're called in that condition, you know, you can't be an elder. It was restricted. Men had to be examples of godliness. Because if Paul would have said, men, get rid of all your wives but one, guess who they would have turned out? The ones that were older, Uh, they would have turned them out. And in cultures where missionaries have gone into that and they said, oh, you can't have more than one wife. They've gone into, you know, Islamic cultures or sometimes Hindu culture. And they say, you need to get rid of all your wives with one. Well, guess what? They turn out the ones that maybe aren't the best looking or that are old or have been sick, etc. And it creates a lot of problems. I remember uh, my theology professor, Dr. Rudolph, uh, telling us this. Missionaries are somewhat responsible for some of the prostitution and things that go on after the gospels preached, because these women are put out with no means of living, and they shouldn't turn to sin, but sometimes they do. And you know what they should should have been told is: teach your sons to only have one wife, take care of those wives you have, but you need to. You know that that was a wrong thing to do. So I'm not. By the way, I'm not. The reason I mentioned thats that is that. Scripture regulates that, and if we would follow the Bible carefully, particularly in missions, we would say, polygamy is wrong, it must not continue, but if you're in that condition, you need to take care of the women that you that presently are your wives, even though it's not the best. Uh, Someone would say, well, shouldn't you tell me to get rid of all of them? Well, what happens again is that the women are put out with no means of sustenance. And that's unjust. You can tell them, pick one wife, but support the others. Probably be the best way of doing it to make sure that they don't starve or fall into, you know, temptation. So the same thing is true with, with slavery. Paul is regulating it, and very clearly he is, you know, pushing toward freedom. And it's the things that were taught in the New Testament that eventually led to the eradication of slavery in the British Empire and pretty much in the United States also. And so we find here that our slaves were to act. We say, what does that have to do with us? Well, turn to John chapter 8. Maybe we can mention here. Most of us would say, hey, we're free men and women. You know, we belong to God because of his grace and goodness. In uh, John chapter 8, as Jesus is teaching and speaking, Uh, We're told in verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews, that is Judeans, okay, who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. What a wonderful promise. But they answered him because they were in very much opposition. Anything he said, they took it in, in a prejudicial manner. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. It's like, my, my. Apparently these people had never read the book of Exodus, had never read the book of Judges, where Israel was time and again enslaved to kings, etc. So this is just complete ignorant boasting on their part. We're free people. We've never been in bondage. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, by the way, this is not a master that's to be obeyed and served, okay? You go, oh, I'm a slave to sin. It says slaves obey your master. No, 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 okay? That'll learn to distinguish the things that are distinguished. And Jesus says, and a slave does not abide in the house forever. He's not a, a bondservant. You know, they, they that belong to the family. But a son abides forever because the son is entitled to the inheritance, Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Then he points out to them, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So he's telling them, if you're Abraham's seed, he goes on and tells them, you wouldn't be doing the things you're doing. And he pointed out to them, you show yourselves to be the sons of the devil more than anything else. And so there's a slavery that's to be avoided. That's slavery to sin and slavery to men. We've seen that. In, in these verses, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul again talks about a form of bondage that Christians uh, must not allow themselves to be taken in by. And that's in chapter 5, at verse 1. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So he's telling them, you are Christ's servants, but you are free in him. Uh, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Because Galatians, you see, they had Judaizers coming in. Uh, to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a region, not a city. So they were going up there and telling him, oh, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or you can't be saved. Paul said, you're not under the ceremonial law of Moses. Don't let them bind your conscience to things that God hasn't bound you to. If Paul says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you're going to trust in a ceremony, and get yourself circumcised and think, oh, now I get to go to heaven, you don't know what the gospel is. Same thing is true if a person thinks, oh, my water baptism saves me. No, Jesus Christ saves you. If you're thinking a ceremony saves you, or oh, when I have the Lord's Supper, that means I really belong to Jesus. Well, yes, it should mean that. But that means I'm going to heaven because I did the ceremony. No, it doesn't mean that. Paul says, if you're circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law you want to go that route you've got to have perfect obedience perfect and perpetual by the way you can't have perpetual because you're already a sinner you can't have perfect because you do sin but paul says if you want to go the route of the law the law doesn't show mercy he says if so if you want to go through ceremonial compliance you're already damned all right you're going to hell because that means you've never really come to christ You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, he's not saying you've lost your salvation. He's saying you never had it, if that's your case. For we, through the Spirit, talking about we, meaning those who are really converted, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, Circumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you a little leaven; leavens the whole lump. So Paul is saying there is a type of slavery you are to fight against and not allow yourself to become uh, brought into bondage, and that is uh, this type of slavery of you know slave your conscience being enslaved. But that's what the Reformation was about. Remember Luther, he said, My conscience is bound to the word of God, I can do no other. In verse uh, 13, Paul says uh, of Galatians chapter 5, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So this idea of being Christ's slave, it shows itself in service to God's people. For the law, for all the laws fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the type of servitude that we're called to. So are you a slave? The answer is yes and no. Yes, you are a slave of Christ. No, you're not a slave of men. And no, your conscience is not to be brought into slavery to ceremonies, whether they're Mosaic or Romish or any other thing like that. Um, You're not to be slaves of men. You're not to be slaves of sin. That means you have to come to Jesus. You're not under bondage to the law of Moses. Again, you are free in Christ. And so we're delivered from those things. And so in what way are we slaves? We're slaves to serve Christ. We belong to him. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He is your Lord. And so this idea of serving with all sincerity of heart, with goodwill, et cetera, et cetera, that's how you're to approach your service of God or to God. You're to have goodwill. You're to serve him faithfully. Not because you're a servile slave of Jesus, but because you are a free man or woman in Christ, redeemed by the blood of your Savior, given freedom. Your sins are forgiven. He's at work in your life. Praise God. You can actually serve God now. Before, all you could do is serve sin, and that would end in death. Now you can serve Christ because God has freed you from the guilt and is freeing you from the corruptions of your sins. And you belong to him. So we've got a lot to be thankful for. So this does have application, this passage. Uh, it does have application to each one of us. But we see historically, when it first came from the apostles, this teaching, and then we see its effect in history. And that's because of Christ. Christ is the great liberator of mankind, but people don't realize it. He's definitely the savior of his people, those who believe in him. So um, we have reason to thank God. So let's Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you have freed us from our sins, from the guilt of our sins, from the sentence of condemnation. We thank you that you freed us from the, the sentence of hell against us, Lord, by taking that hell upon yourself when you suffered on the cross. Lord, you made yourself you uh, as a servant, Lord. Um, you washed your disciples' feet and did that work, and you taught us to uh, Learn from that example and to do likewise, Lord, in ministering to each other. So we pray you to help us, Lord, to truly be your slaves, your servants, and help us to glory in the freedom that we have and the fact that you've called us to serve you and that we are not just slaves, Lord. We're your children, we're sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. So we thank you for that, Lord. Help us to be the people you want us to be and keep us in your love and grace both now and in the days ahead. This we ask in the name of our Savior, who died for us and rose again, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We have a closing hymn, I believe. offertory <laughs> You may be seated. Well, this time we have opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Oops, and as you know, the passage in First Corinthians that we read to pretty much every time uh, says we're to examine ourselves, which Paul then defines as judging ourselves, as he says in verse thirty-two. If we would judge ourselves, uh, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Uh, And so it's important for us to examine our hearts before the Lord, those things that God brings to mind and shows us this is an area you need to ask forgiveness and cleansing for. We'll do that and then we'll, we'll give him thanks and then we'll continue on and celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is pointing to the cross of Christ, the means by which God saved us from our sins. And the application of that sacrifice by the Holy Spirit is what's causing us to change and grow in our lives even now. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, as you came into this world to save us from our sins, and you've told us that sin will not have dominion over us because we're not under the law but under grace, Lord, we thank you that it's your grace, Lord, that changes us. It's your grace that found us, your grace that called us. But we thank you, Lord, that grace was given to us according to your word, even before the foundation of the world in times eternal. Lord God, even before the creation existed in your decree and your plan and your purpose, you had already decreed that we would exist. And you had decreed that even though we would sin against you, Lord, that we would be forgiven and redeemed by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And you gave us grace in him. Father, we thank you that throughout eternity, Lord, and then once you had created time, that grace found us out, Lord, even as we have often sung in our songs. So we thank you, Lord God, for your grace. It is truly amazing, Lord. It did find us out and it has changed us. And we have been set free because of it, Lord. So we thank you, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ the only savior, and no one could do could have done what he did, Lord, except him. Lord, we needed an infinite eternal sacrifice, a sacrifice of eternal value. And so you sent your son, who is an eternal person, and he took our human nature and a body of flesh and blood and became a true man, made like us in every respect, Lord, a true human being, with the exception of sin. So we thank you, Father, for sending Your your sinless son into this world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we look to you, we can truly see what we should have been. But we also thank you that we see you, Lord, in all your glory and your goodness to us. We thank you for the perfection of your humanity and your sinlessness. And we thank you, Lord, that you're at work conforming us to your image. You're taking sin out of our lives. Lord, we know that when you return, when we're raised up incorruptible or changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, Lord, we'll be made like you in all aspects, Lord, of our physical being, having no sin in us. We'll never say a word we shouldn't say or have a thought we shouldn't think or do a deed that is displeasing to God. We thank you, Lord. We long for that time when we no longer sin. Lord, we do pray that you would hasten that day. And in the meantime, give us the grace of your Holy Spirit so that we can now live lives that are holy and pleasing to you, Lord God, our Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming into this world, and we acknowledge it's only by your sacrifice that we have forgiveness and eternal life. And we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. You know the sins that we have committed against you, Lord, in days past. In our words, by saying things we should not have said, or leaving unsaid words of encouragement and kindness or truth that we should have spoken, and we're either just unaware or too cowardly to speak up but lord we pray you'd forgive us lord and help us to speak those words that are pleasing to you and as you've told us that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks lord we pray you'd forgive us for the thoughts that we've had in our heads lord that led to saying bad things or doing bad deeds we pray you'd forgive us our our thought sins both of commission and omission lord instead of giving our minds to meditate on the things we should have lord we've Filled our heads with vanity and foolishness all too often and sinful things. So, Lord, deliver us from all such things. Work within our heart of hearts, Lord, and sanctify us. We pray you'd apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our very innermost being, Lord, and transform us, Lord, that we might truly love you and and serve you. And, Lord God, we do pray you'd forgive us the deeds that we've done or the good things we should have done that we didn't do. And we pray you'd pardon our sins. But, Lord, we do thank you for those things you have done in us, in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We thank you, Lord God, that you have foreordained good works that we should walk in them. But, Lord, we'll boast in nothing that we've done or can do, Lord, as we stand before your cross, Lord, you, Lord Jesus Christ, who were crucified for us you who appointed this supper to remind us that our salvation came about because your body was broken and your blood was shed lord any foolishness of good works in us that we might think we have fades away and flees away as as darkness before light lord when we consider you lord jesus in dying for us and rising again in the glory of the father so lord we look to you as we just sang lord and We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are our Savior. We thank you for appointing this supper. Lord, you've told us we walk by faith, not by sight, and yet you give us visible signs of bread and wine. You condescend to our weakness, and so you put something in front of us that we can see, touch, taste, and be nurtured by. To remind us of your love to us, Lord. We thank you for your condescension your gentleness to us lord god and lifting us up so lord as we look and see the bread and the wine and partake of it we pray that as we receive these symbols of your body broken and your blood shed that the reality to which they point would truly be accomplished in us it would That you lord jesus would be received by faith lord and that we would remember you who's came to save us and accomplished what you came to do so we thank you lord and we praise you bless these elements of bread and wine that we here set aside heavenly father in the name of your son jesus christ according to his appointment bless them and bless all who come for we ask this in jesus Christ's name amen